Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're going to find out what we can do to prevent technology-assisted harmful sexual behaviour. In this episode, we're going to Canberra to the Daniel Morecambe Foundation's Bright Futures Forum on October 13 to hear the latest research from three experts in this field of image-based abuse and what parents and carers need to be aware of to keep their kids safe. Firstly, we hear from Professor Nicola Henry from RMIT, a socio-legal scholar with more than two decades of research into sexual violence and how the prevalence of image-based abuse has increased in recent years. She also tells us about how a chatbot she's created is fighting back, using artificial intelligence to combat image-based abuse. We also hear from Dr Sarah Napier, who's research manager of the Online Sexual Exploitation of Children Research Program at the Australian Institute of Criminology. She shares her insights into how child sexual abuse has evolved and changed and how online sexual abuse has fed into juvenile sexual offending. And we go to Carolyn Jones, a principal solicitor with Youth Law Australia, to hear the legal perspective and what ramifications this increase in technology-assisted harmful sexual behaviours is having on our kids. She tells us about the laws around image sharing and sexting that all young people need to know. It's just wonderful to have access to the incredible range of expertise that we have here today. Uh, Firstly, I think if we can talk to Nicola Henry. So Nicola is a professor and Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the Social and Global Studies Centre at RMIT University. She's a socio-legal scholar with over two decades of research experience in the sexual violence field. So Nicola, can you tell us from all that extensive experience, what have you noticed about the prevalence of image-based abuse content and How has that changed really and evolved in recent years? Um, Thank you so much, Nance. My team and I have done quite a few surveys over the last few years on image-based sexual abuse, but also more broadly on technology-facilitated sexual violence as well. And in 2016, uh, so quite a number of years ago now, um, we surveyed over 4,000 Australians about their experiences of image-based abuse. And what we found then, back in 2016, 
was that one in five said that they'd had at least one experience of image-based sexual abuse. So we define image-based sexual abuse as the non-consensual creating or taking of intimate images or the non-consensual sharing of intimate images or thirdly, threats made to share intimate images, also known as extortion. So one in five back in 2016 had said that they'd had that experience. We did some more surveys again in 2019. We did them in Australia, New Zealand and the UK. And what we found in 2019, that one now compared to one in five in 2016, we found that one in three people said that they'd had at least one experience of image-based sexual abuse. And that included one in five people who said that someone had shared their intimate images without their consent. Back in 2016, we found that one in 10 said that they'd had a non-consensual experience of distribution. So we have seen some changes over the years um, in terms of increases in prevalence, and I think this coheres with what Carolyn was talking about in terms of increases in sextortion uh, reporting or disclosures on the Youth Law Australia platform or on uh, Office of the eSafety Commissioner as well, getting increases in reports of sextortion, but also increases of reports of deep fakes being created as well in relation to cyberbullying, but also in terms of adult forms of abuse as well. So we are seeing some big increases in certain behaviours and, um, you know, unfortunately, despite all the efforts that have happened in this space, we still need to do a lot more. So that tech-assisted harm is really growing. Do you think that public awareness is keeping up with that or is it lagging a bit? Is there still a bit of an ignorance as to how widespread this problem is? So I've been doing research in this space since about 2012, 2013. So over a 10-year period, I've definitely noticed quite a lot of changes. It's actually been really... Um, I've been very lucky to see those changes over that time period. And one of the changes I would say is that definitely has been um, a massive increase in awareness. Um, back in 2015, 2016, when we were doing interviews with police, we were doing interviews with key stakeholders, some people just didn't really have, didn't really know much about image-based abuse. So now, um, across you know, different sectors of society and different organisations, image-based abuse, people know what that is. The term revenge porn used to be the word that was used. I hardly hear that word being used anymore um, because it's not a very nice term and it's been replaced with something that is much more um, encapsulating of the experiences and the diversity of experiences, diversity of impacts, diversity of motivations, which is image-based abuse or image-based sexual abuse. So we've seen a change in terminology and I think that reflects increasing awareness. We've seen changes in terms of platforms taking uh, proactive and reactive responses to non-consensual content that's been shared or illegal content that's been shared on their platforms. So we've seen massive changes happening there. There's still a lot more work that needs to happen there though too. Schools are, are more across the issue, uh, which has been really great. The police, there's still some problems in terms of police responses to people who've had experiences of image-based abuse. We've done interviews recently with 75 victim survivors of image-based abuse, and many of them did report some pretty terrible experiences with the police. However, many also did report quite positive experiences. So it's a, bit, a little bit up and down, but definitely there has been an increase of awareness, but I think we just need to do a lot more. So what are some of the, the main digital tools that are concerning in this space? What are you finding? So digital tools are being used by people choosing violence or perpetrators, offenders. Um, there are ones like I mentioned a few moments ago about deepfakes. So using um, deepfake technologies to create 
um, fake pornography. There's also AI-generated porn as well, so uh, creating quite realistic-looking pornography um, based on the training data of images of ordinary people who have never consented to those images being used for AI-generated porn, and then that AI-generated porn being used in kind of criminal context, so for instance in catfishing, trying to lure people in, thinking that it's a real person and, and extorting them for money and, and other, um, other things. So, so they're the kind of technologies on the horizon, I mean not on the horizon, they're here now. Um, there's, uh, things are changing very rapidly in the space with AI, as we all know. The other thing too, there's these apps called Deep Nudes, so where the app undresses a person. So there's things like that that are happening that are really concerning, but then we also have digital tools being used for good. And I think we always have to remember, you know, the technology, yes, can be implicated in abusive behaviours, but also can be used to detect harmful content online and to get it taken down. One aspect of your research that I have found particularly fascinating, but you're the lead researcher behind a pilot chatbot. Is it, how do I say this, Umibot? Umibot. Can you explain this for us? And how does this chatbot use artificial intelligence for good, like you say, to fight image-based abuse? So we, my colleague, Dr. Alice Witt, who's also at RMIT University with me, her and I spent about a year and a half on the content behind our, our chatbot called Yumibot. Um, you can look up Yumibot online and hopefully you'll get the right page. Um, but I did, uh, Carolyn talked earlier in her presentation about keeping up with content and it certainly is a challenge. We naively went into the development of the chatbot thinking it would cost about 40000 Australian dollars and it cost us nearly, um, with, with labour and costs included, nearly $300,000 um, because there's just so much behind. I, I think I naively, I'm not a tech person, I think naively I thought, you know, that there'd be like a, 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 like a system already in place where it would automatically train the chatbot. But we actually had to be very careful with the training of the chatbot. We had to train the chatbot ourselves. So we couldn't allow a chatbot on such a sensitive issue to learn from the users engaging because otherwise we'd get a chatbot that might be abusive or might be racist or sexist. So everything that our chatbot, Yumibot, um, delivers in terms of information is something that we, we have inputted. And that's why it took so long. We've got 500 pages of content for people over the age of 18, so adults, but also people under the age of 18. And the chatbot essentially provides information, support and general advice to people who have experienced image-based abuse, again, whether they're over 18 or under 18. But it also provides information, support and advice to bystanders, as well as people who have engaged in harmful behaviours. So we wanted to make sure that all three groups were catered for and that under 18s and over 18s were catered for as well because people need information. They need to know what can they do, what are their next steps, um, who can they speak to, will they get in trouble with the police, how will the police respond to this, what are the laws around these behaviours. And so we really wanted the chatbot to be seen as a stepping stone to get further support and advice. And it's also there for people based on interviews that I've previously done with victim survivors of image-based abuse. Many people don't know that what has happened to them is a crime. They don't know that they can do anything to get help. They think there's nothing that can be done. They don't know what the consequences will be for the person who's done this to them. 
Um, and many of them just don't want to speak to a human person about their experiences because they feel like they're to blame. There's a lot of internal victim blaming. There's a lot of external victim blaming, unfortunately, that still occurs. So we thought that a chatbot was a good idea, and it's an experiment, just to be clear. But an experiment is a way to, sit, to help people who aren't ready to speak to a human person at this particular point. But we also do recognise that, you know, that also can be an issue. Sometimes it's really good to speak to a human person. So it's really, it's another tool because like you say, this is such a difficult topic for people to breach, <laughs> to, to, to broach with other people. Um, it's another tool that, to give them that information and a step along the way, I suppose, to, to hopefully resolving what's happening. It is, and we've got a website as well. So we've got a web, the, on our website um, we have you know all the different behaviours like sextortion behaviours, uh, non-consensual sharing of intimate images, someone pressuring you to share images, also known as sexting coercion, cyber flashing, so someone sending you unsolicited, explicit imagery. So we have all the kind of step things that you can take. So again, you know things like if someone's uh, threatening to share your intimate images on our website, you can. There's a whole lot of steps you can do, you know, should, should I pay the money? That's also on our chatbot, but we also do have that on a, on a project website because, you know, some people don't want to use a chatbot, but it's really important to have that information and the support and advice out there because a lot of people feel really alone and really isolated. And that's why, you know, there's so many organisations like Youth Law Australia, like Beyond Blue and other organisations that are providing that really essential support and help to um, people who've had these experiences. Oh, so people can jump on and uh, use Yumibot now and give it, a, give it a whirl? Yes, please do check out Yumibot. Um, just go <laughs> online and type in, um, I can't remember the, <laughs> the web address, um, but you, if you type it into Google, you'll, you'll come up with our little chatbot. Oh, thank you, Nicola. I think this sort of leads on to really where we can draw out really more information from our, our other wonderful speakers on the panel, just about, I think, you know, have policies really kept pace with technology? Uh, Sarah, I mean, have you, does this tally with the research you've done, what, what Nicola has found as well, and just the complexity, I suppose, too, of what's involved? I think um, what it really touches on is how quickly things are changing and that's something that I've definitely seen uh, with online sexual exploitation of children and um, Nicola mentioned um, generative AI and that's moving so quickly that uh, you know we haven't even got time to really think about it and we have children already making uh, deep fakes of other kids at school in sexual positions and and uh, in sex having sexual encounters using generative AI. And this can be done, obviously, as Nicola was saying, this deep fake issue has been happening for a long time, but generative AI makes it so much easier now. And it's something that we definitely haven't kept up with. Um, another crime in this area that we haven't kept up with is live streaming of child sexual abuse, which has been really around since video chat was first invented. There were media reports soon after Skype came out of people sort of selling their children online from other countries. And we really haven't caught up with that. Uh, it's still very hard to detect because it's a live stream of child sexual abuse. And so there isn't often a lot of evidence left over for police to take it to trial and that kind of thing and find the offender. And it's still happening. There's a huge demand for it, but it's, it's really difficult to detect. And you touched on that live streaming there. How do offenders who watch live streaming of child sexual abuse get access to victims in other countries? 
Yeah, so we did some research on this at the Australian Institute of Criminology where we analysed chat logs from offenders in Australia who had watched children being sexually abused in the Philippines and we found that they accessed these children through two main um, methods. Um, the first method was by visiting the Philippines in person for work or for other reasons and then making friends with families in the community and sort of pretty much grooming those families for access to their children. And then they would return home to Australia and offer those families money to watch their children being sexually abused online. And they would build networks with those, with those families. And the other method was just started purely online. So offenders would look for adult women on dating sites who had children and start forming adult intimate relationships with them, but then eventually offer them money um, for access to their children online. So they would actually find um, older teenagers on dating sites and social media as well and groom them and then ask them for access to their younger siblings and offer them money and that kind of thing. So they sort of built this network of, of victims, survivors and, and their families online who they could um, go to and offer money. And unfortunately, there were so there's so many vulnerable people in the Philippines uh, that are really um, desperate for money that they were adhering to these requests. The ripple effects of this really are just so wide, aren't they? I mean, how how has this online sexual abuse actually fed into juvenile sexual offending as well? Yeah, well, that's the concern, isn't it? Because we've had this dramatic shift in you know both adults and children from offline communication to online communication over the last 20 years. And for children, that has implications uh, for criminalisation because there's so many more online um, harms that, are, that children can be actually perpetrators of now without fully realising the impact um, that uh, things like image-based abuse and um, using generative AI for image-based abuse and sexual extortion, that kind of thing, uh, is is really going into that juvenile space. And um, unfortunately, children are being criminalised for it. And so if you look at the ABS data, the, the rates of sexual offending, non-assaultive sexual offending among juveniles have actually increased steadily over the last 13 years uh, because, and it's, Obviously, the data really can't tell you exactly what offences they were, but I'm sure a lot of that is to do with sexting. We saw a massive spike around 2011-12, um, which, which thankfully came down a bit, but it's overall steadily going upwards, and that's probably all the other things that we are just talking about, like image-based abuse and sexual extortion, that kind of thing. So it's a real risk for children in terms of victimisation but also perpetration and criminalisation of young people. This is a question that I think I hear a lot as a journalist when I'm reporting on this area but is there a typical offender? In terms of um, online sexual exploitation there really isn't. We've seen people who have been detected for child sexual abuse material offences who are judges, uh, lawyers, cleaners, teachers, construction workers. They're from all walks of life, from all different ages. And so that's the one sort of crime that you really can't um, put a typical profile to. 
what we can see is that certain characteristics increase the likelihood that a person will be an online sexual offender against children. So for example, in some of my research, I found that people who had viewed bestiality pornography with adults and who have viewed sort of SNM type pornography with adults were uh, much more likely to have viewed child sexual abuse material online. So whether that's because they're looking at certain sites that expose them to lots of different harmful material, I'm not sure. Um, but they are, uh, or whether it's sort of an interest in the taboo and forbidden sort of things, illegal things, it's something that we need to look more into. But there are certain characteristics that increase the likelihood. Also, there's um, background characteristics that sort of increase your likelihood. Like I found that people who had been sexually abused as children were more likely, around twice as likely or three times as likely to view child sexual abuse material. But in terms of say the typical age of the offender, the criminal justice figures will tell you that most people who are caught for child sexual abuse material offences are around 35 to 45 year old males, but that's just people who are caught. So there's uh, research that I've done into people in the community who haven't necessarily been detected. And um, you know, like I said in my presentation, around 70% of those said that they first started viewing child sexual abuse material when they were under 18. So we're seeing people viewing uh, harmful material at increasingly younger ages. And it really tells us that what we know about the criminal justice figures doesn't really equate to what's necessarily in the community and that there really isn't a typical offender. And, and this ever-evolving area, it does make it incredibly difficult to, for policymakers, I think, to keep up with and to respond to, doesn't it? I mean, has your research gone into that and uh, how can we... I feel like we nobody even talked about artificial intelligence six months ago and now everyone's across it. So what would your recommendations be? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky one, but I think one thing we can't do is sort of set things in in stone. So if we have, say, a, a five-year project that has to focus on a certain behaviour, we can't really have that in the online sexual exploitation of children's space because, as you said, things are changing so quickly and, you know, last year people weren't talking about generative AI until uh, probably, you know, late September last year or something and now everyone's talking about it so anything can really pop up and sexual extortion has increased dramatically just since last year as well. We've seen those figures skyrocketing in the US and Australia. So I think if any policies that we do implement need to be adaptable and need to be open to the fact that things are changing and that new threats emerge all the time. So we can't do what we've done in the past and be set in one sort of offending when it could change and, and then we're not addressing that offending. So that's one thing we have to do is be adaptable. I also think that this sort of offending in the online space can't really be focused on with one sector. So we can't rely on police. Police are doing their best and they're doing a great job, but they admit themselves that, that it's beyond their resource capability to, to deal with this. So we need to have people uh, like Nicola, Carolyn, every, every one of you in the room from multiple different sectors actually working together to actually do this. And I think there needs to be a lot more emphasis on prevention because 
a lot of offenders are out there and they're not getting caught because of anonymity on the internet, et cetera, encryption. So we need to sort of focus on prevention efforts, whether that's through anonymous rehabilitation or just simple things that will prevent someone and increase the effort in offending, like pop-up warning messages and other things that can deter people. Carolyn, from your legal perspective, is that something that's overlapping there that, that you see as well? You mentioned before just even some, some small tweaks, I suppose, that could be made to policies, just even things like having the age that you've got to tick before you go into these websites. What are some of the things that you could recommend that, that should be looked at here? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think the biggest problem being a, a federation is just having essentially nine different sets of law. So we've got the national law and then the, the different laws across the states and territories. Uh, and that, that just creates chaos in terms of being able to have consistent messaging. So we sometimes see some amazing resources in this space developed in one jurisdiction, but we can't actually use it anywhere else because it's jurisdiction specific. So I think one of the things that would be most helpful, and I think obviously the work that National Office of Child Safety has just kicked off around some sort of harmonisation in terminology is amazing. Um, and there's so many other things we'd like to see in that space. Um, and also in the family and domestic violence space as well, that just help people identify that this is a situation that is relevant to them and then to work out what a help-seeking pathway uh, looks like. I think that then feeds into the policies, um, guide, guidelines, the way that other workers, frontline workers, and particularly police and child protection authorities respond. The hardest issue as a lawyer working with kids is providing them with advice about what to expect as the consequence, because we really don't know. We can give them parameters and say, look, this may happen or this may happen. And like a really good example for, uh, that we've had recently, uh, which happens all the time. So we regularly hear about um, a young person who has got into trouble at school because they've shared a nude. Um, and usually it's a non-consensual sharing of someone else's intimate image. Um, they may not have been the first person to share it. Someone else may have shared it. It's gone around the whole group. But one person may have been the instigator or the person that's actually made it worse, or they may have created a deep fake or done something additionally to, to doctor the image to make it even um, more embarrassing for the subject. We'll see some schools immediately expel that child immediate expulsion. There's, there's no consideration, there's no discussion. We'll see other schools will have, it, have a chat to that young person, they'll invite a safe person into the conversation that may be a parent. They'll then assess whether they will involve police, they'll talk about what options there might be. There may be then an educative response and so because we, we're seeing that happening across schools and there's not necessarily um, an indication that the response is linked to whether it's a state-based school or an independent or a faith-based school, that we can't say that either. We've seen some amazing responses from faith-based and independent schools and some terrible responses from state schools and vice versa. So I think we can't, we can't even predict what individual educational institutions will do. And then sometimes when police are uh, involved, we'll have some cops who'll say, God, they've just sent a dick pic. Who gives it? Who, you know, yeah, we'll give them a scare. We'll have a yarn to them up the, you know, at the back. We'll get them down here and we'll give them a bit of a scare. They won't do it again. And we'll have others that will proceed to say, yes, we're going to prosecute. And then we'll look at, you know, half a dozen different offences potentially that they'll charge that young person with. And 
to be honest, a lot of police are quite confused about what the offences are because there's so many and it is a challenging space. I mean, we, we try to list all the potential offences for kids and sometimes there'll be eight or nine different offences that might be relevant to the circumstance with what they've done. And we can't predict what, what might be the one that the police would be most interested in prosecuting under. So I think having, having open conversations about what actually is working, um, there's no monitoring of whether it reduces recidivism. So, you know, if you... If you actually have a response that's pretty heavy-handed, maybe a kid goes to children's court and they've got a, um, some sort of offence in relation to child abuse material, is it actually reducing offending? Probably not. Um, if it's not then linked in with a harmful sexual behaviour program, and I'm no expert in harmful sexual behaviour programs at all, and I appreciate, I think, the, the Daniel Morecambe uh, Foundation Forum on Monday in Sydney is having a good look at some of those programs in New South Wales, which is really great. Um, is there's not consistency in those either. And the eligibility to get into those programs is also relevant to what behaviour that you've actually been accused of, of using. And so that makes it challenging for us to even suggest an appropriate response. So I think genuine conversations, um, as, as Sarah pointed out, across interdisciplinary approaches and with lots of different people to say, actually, what's working, what's not working? Let's be honest, let's take the, the ego and the, you know, the hierarchy of professions that sometimes people think there is out of the room and talk about what, what's best for kids. And given that, uh, I know this comes from a legal perspective, but is there anything you can share that, about what you think could work prevention-wise, as Sarah was mentioning? Um, I mean, look, it's for us it's education, but as I said, we need to be <laughs> confident that we've got the messaging right. Uh, and we know that, uh, for example, if the messaging is done by a lawyer, there's a whole heap of stuff we're missing about uh, psychology and human behaviour and why people might do certain things. So we need to be informed by, you know, primary health approaches and what other people are doing in that space. And, and similarly, when we see sometimes education that's come out of a more traditionally um, education space, so more it might have been designed by teachers, it might have been designed by um, social workers or psychs, they've actually missed the point about what we know in terms of children's concerns about the law and the way that the law might actually respond to that behaviour. So I think part of it's partnership and genuine holistic approaches to how we be preventative and just um, as I suspect I'm hoping everyone in the room's on board with this as early as possible and this needs to be happening you know way 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 back in primary school early primary school maybe infant school I've got some great stories that we're hearing coming out of preschool with some amazing programs that are being run around sort of just you know ideas around consent and bodies and safety and it's, it's awesome like that's what we need to see we need to see you know two and three year olds who are able to say no or get ideas about like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do a fist bump or a high five. I don't want to hug. You know, that's amazing when you have kids say that stuff. So I think we have to be practical about, we've got to talk to the little people. And Nicola, if I can bring it back to you, but just what your perspective, I think, to wrap up the panel and go to some questions, but on, yes, what, what how to keep up, <laughs> what would you recommend for our policymakers and also just, yes, the prevention aspect as well? I think what Sarah and Carolyn have said about the uh, the collaboration between different sectors in society is so important and we've just run actually in, in Paris a few weeks ago um, an event with um, the adult industry, um, this is on adult forms of image-based abuse, but with tech companies, with researchers, with victim survivors and with um, NGOs and victim support services. So we, we, we ran this workshop to really bring together these stakeholders to discuss the key issues and, and brainstorm and problem solve what we can do to take the burden off victim survivors uh, when their content has been shared online and they are you know, 
going through that horrible experience of like constantly looking for that content and being re-traumatised really every time they find that content again and playing that whack-a-mole. So I think working together is absolutely crucial. But I also wanted to make a comment on what both Carolyn and Sarah have said as well. We're dealing with a really complex issue and there's complex motivations behind why someone engages in these behaviours in the first place. For some people it's a very, like when we're talking about image-based abuse, so for, for example uh, sharing intimate images without consent, there are some people who perpetrate that behaviour who are doing it for very malicious purposes. And then you've got young kids doing it without really thinking through what they're doing. Maybe everyone else is doing it. Um, and then you've got people who are doing it for fun because they think it's funny. And then you've got people who are doing it because they think it's sexy. So you've got a real diversity of motivations and I think that raises some really big challenges in terms of prevention. But I so I think we need to capture that diversity of like motivations and victims and perpetrators when we're doing prevention work, but it does need to happen very early. My son is, uh, <laughs> hates his photo being taken. I think his foot got into a photo the other day with a picture of our cats and he demanded that that photo be removed <laughs> from my partner's phone. So it's quite interesting just having those conversations with young people about consent and about images. And I think as adults, you know, we are constantly taking pictures of, you know, people go overseas and take photos of, you know, cute kids in other countries without even getting their consent about taking those photos. So I think there's a lot of broader conversations around images and consent that we need to have. And, I, and I'm yeah, really grateful to be here because I'm meeting lots of lovely people and hopefully we can continue these conversations. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And, and on that note of continuing the conversation, can we, are there any questions from the floor? If you could use a microphone, that would be great just so that we can all hear you. That would be awesome. Um, I've got maybe a bit of a double-barreled question. I was wondering, um, what are the laws, what's the state of the laws around that sort of degenerative AI stuff at the moment? So being able to produce material that isn't based on anybody. And then from, I guess, like a research perspective, are people looking into how that could potentially be reducing offender rates in the space of like child sexual exploitation material, like in the example with the Philippines, people aren't having to go to the Philippines and seek out actual children because maybe they can get degenerative AI to create the material themselves, which is like problemed in a, in a number of ways, um, but potentially that means less offending against real children and families. So Nicola and Carolyn probably know more about the laws than me. Um, I would just like to make a comment on the concept of generative AI replacing the exploitation of actual children. Uh, I think we have to be really careful and it's a really great point you raised, um, not having a go at you, but I think we have to be really careful about that as a concept because there's no evidence to suggest that people who look at child exploitation material that is fake don't then go on to want to offend against real children. Um, and it's a similar argument with childlike sex dolls. Um, so some people have argued that, uh, well, you should just give pedophiles childlike sex dolls, then they won't offend against real children. But there's no evidence that having a childlike sex doll uh, stops an offender from wanting to actually have 
to sexually abuse a real child and there's no evidence either way. So we, I guess we just need more research into that area. Um, but I think we have to be careful to wait till we have the evidence before we say, oh, this could actually be a positive thing. Um, because what, from what I've seen uh, from perpetrators um, looking, I've been on dark net sites where people are talking about their love of children and sexually abusing children, they're encouraging each other. From what I've seen from that, the, any type of sort of animated uh, child sexual abuse material, it, when it gets shared around, doesn't really stop there. It doesn't really, you don't really have certain offenders saying, I'm just going to stick to the animated stuff. They they sort of sparks their interest and they want to see more and it gets them involved in these communities who encourage them to watch abuse of real children. So. It's, um, yeah, it's, it could be actually a huge risk factor if someone is exposed to AI-generated material wanting to then be exposed to real material. That's just my comment on it. Um, yeah, I, I'll just be brief. Um, just to comment on that too about the real, I think in relation to kind of adult forms of content, obviously there's a lot of freely available consensual adult pornography out there. But we still see a lot of image-based abuse content because some people want the real, they want the, the real content, they want you know the non-consensual content. And so I think I, I really agree to some of the things that Sarah said. In relation to the laws, it's a really good question, thank you. In Australia we do have, in some jurisdictions like in New South Wales and the ACT, if you were to share non-consensual images that have been digitally altered, then that would be a criminal offence in some Australian jurisdictions, which is really good because in a lot of international jurisdictions, creating deep fakes isn't a criminal offence. Now, I know there's a, a lot of debate, I think someone brought it up earlier about the art, you know, like the creative, you know, freedom of expression issues that come up with deep fakes. But there is a little bit of protection. And also under the Online Safety Act, which is the legislation federally that provides civil penalties around you know, adult cyber abuse, cyber bullying, but also image-based abuse content. If you have experienced someone digitally altering your images, i.e. creating deep fakes, then you do have some recourse under that national online safety legislation. Um, there's also kind of copyright, I mean, that's really complicated. I won't get into the copyright stuff because then when you're really dealing with content that's purely fake, there's no actual person involved. There are so many emerging issues around, you know, the training data sets of how those images were generated and the lack of consent that ordinary people have, you know, never consented to their images being part of a database that's been tra that trains the AI to create that fake porn. So this is a kind of very much watch this space in terms of how the law is going to respond. But yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And could I just confirm, like from that legal perspective, if somebody is viewing child sexual exploitation material online, would it, that still, if they were to then say, oh no, well it's AI, it's not a lived child, do the, are the laws in a position now where they would still say, well no, that is still considered child sexual exploitation material, regardless of where it's originated from? Yes. I mean, obviously subject to some slight distinctions around art, but generally, yes. So the, the legislation frames it as anything where there's a depiction or a description of something that might be a child sexual abuse or child exploitation material offence. And so 
for example, I think people perhaps don't realise that it captures words, not just images. So that's why kids get in trouble for sending sexy texts. That's actually an offence as well. So you can't send words about sex involving anyone under 18 as well or describing body parts about anyone under 18. But yeah, definitely if it picks up anything that's to do with imagery. And so we, I, mean, I think for, we have a lot of kids that are still, they're not really in the AI space yet. So they're using it, they're using that more for cheating on exams. Uh, but they're, they we're seeing more of this popping up in image-based abuse. But for, for children and young people and uh, the stuff, the, the inquiries we're getting is around uh, images that they're creating uh, with just friends' images and using quite sophisticated apps really that uh, the deep, it's more the deep fake, the deep nude sort of stuff that we're seeing and that's all definitely covered. And so I can't see at the moment that there'd be an exemption for anything that was generative AI. I think part of it might be proving who, who created it, you know, where it's come from. I think some of that's the issue and that's why the Online Safety Act and safety by design is so important because we have to actually be looking at, the, you know, who's actually responsible in the bigger picture by creating spaces where you can even make those images. Like, you know, if you're creating tools that allow that to happen, you know, there has to be some accountability for those those services as well. I'll just add something to that just quickly that, um, yeah, there's some really great insight into that from Carolyn and the eSafety Commissioner has already received... And, and NECMEC, the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children, has already received inquiries from the generative AI companies saying, oh, people are creating child sexual abuse material. Is this illegal, you know, with, that, with our tool? Are we responsible? Like, they don't even know. So, yeah, it's a really good question, actually. And it definitely is um, child abuse material, but there are some issues around who's responsible. My question is, I'm still kind of forming it in my head, but I was thinking a lot about that empowerment through education for our children and young people. They're so inquisitive and um, a lot of that came up through the um, questions that you were reading out, Carolyn. Um, but then I was also thinking about how disability is a risk factor in adults. So assuming that it would be quite a risk factor in children and young people too. Um, for you guys who are providing that education um, and those resources, what is that cross-section with disability or a disability lens on that look like? Yeah, thank you. Great question. Um, we've, uh, as a national service, we, we've more recently been engaging with SECA in WA who do great online and, and other in-person education around that intersection around sex, healthy relationships, consent and disability. And so we're getting some guidance from them about how we can ensure that the materials we're using are actually accessible for everyone. Um, I think we appreciate that what, what's currently out there on our website and others is not. Uh, it's interesting, I didn't actually talk to that in the material, but um, a huge percentage of the inquiries we get are from kids that self-identify as ASD or ADHD. Huge. <laughs> the kids with ASD will sometimes come online and chat with us for an hour and a half in a chat. We can't get them off because they're just, they're just, they've got so many questions, they've got such a strong sense of fairness, they want to know exactly what it says, we go round and round in circles, and then they'll keep saying, I'm really sorry, I'm just going to ask this again. I've just reread what you said in the transcript back there, but I just need to double check this. And and so we can see that that's actually a real, a real need that we need to actually not just have accessible materials that are static that they can access on a website, but to have people who are prepared to, you know, work with them in a way that's that's comfortable and makes sense to them as well. So I think it's definitely a space where we're working in. I don't think we've nailed it yet, but no, welcome, welcome suggestions on how we can improve that because it's a great, it's yeah, it's a great question. So thank you very much. Thank you to um, our wonderful panel here today. Really appreciate your expertise and what we've shared. Fascinating. Thank you so much.
And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.